about it. Okay, so let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Luke chapter number 7. Luke chapter number 7. And uh, we're continuing our series that I've entitled Refocus. And our desire here is just to strip away all of the preconceived notions and traditions and all these other things that we've added on top of Christ and just go through the Gospels and to see him for who he is. And we've been looking at different instances where he's interacting with, uh, with different people groups. He's been spending time talking to disciples and talking to those who uh, are still on the, on the fringe, those who are still undecided. He's been spending time even with some of those who uh, would be considered antagonistic toward him, those who didn't believe, those who didn't like him. And so he interacts with all different segments of society, and we see his heart for them. We see uh, his attitude toward them. And a lot of times it is contrary to the way that we would perceive, the way that we would imagine, because in our minds and in our hearts, we have this idea of what Christ is like. And a lot of it is affected and shaded by religion and the way that we've been uh, treated in religion or the way that things have went in our lives and different things. But we see that Jesus isn't beholden to our uh, to our expectations. He's not beholden to our experiences. But instead, he's able to uh, transcend all of that and minister to us where we are. And we've seen how he has dealt tenderly and kindly, even with those who are outcasts of society. We've seen how he is able to confront the, uh, the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees and different ones. And he is able to be balanced, right? Yeah. And that is something that I, I have to really bring out whenever we come to Scripture, is that Christ does bring balance. And this is even from conversations before church and different things. We as human beings are so prone to extremes, we're so prone to emphasize one thing at the expense of another and emphasize this and ignore that. And we pick apart the parts that we like and we ignore the parts that we don't like and all these different things. And it has caused us to have this skewed view, this skewed vision of who Jesus really is. But as we come to him in scripture, we see who he is. He's not near as uh, complicated as what we make him out to be. He's not near as uh, oppressive, maybe I should say, as religion makes him out to be. And so we strip all these things away and we see him for who he is. And last week what we saw is that there were uh, those amongst his followers that had some doubts, they had some concerns, and Jesus didn't dismiss them. He didn't Uh, send them away. He didn't uh, scorn them or rebuke them. Instead, he dealt with them gently. Uh, We saw John's doubting. We saw Peter's doubting. We saw uh, Thomas's doubting. Of course, we always think of Thomas, but to think that John the Baptist and that Peter, two of the most uh, ardent supporters of Christ, right? His forerunner and his mouthpiece in a way of speaking, right? But both of them dealt with times of doubt and dealt with times of discouragement. So we find that whenever we have times that we struggle, times that we doubt, sometimes that things don't make sense to us, we are in good company, right? But we need to be careful that our doubts don't cause us to abandon our faith. 
just because there are some things that we can't answer, some things that we don't understand, some things that doesn't fit into our expectations, we don't just throw it away wholesale. Instead, this is something big enough, something important enough for us to deal with, for us to sort through and sift through. And while we're doing that, Jesus isn't offended. He's not going to uh, kick us in the teeth because we've stepped out of line. And instead of that, he is going to be able to gently come along beside of us and walk with us through these times that there's difficulty and discouragement. We saw that John the Baptist was uh, seeking out other believers to help him uh, navigate this time. We see that Jesus was reminding him of all of the evidences, all the proofs of who Jesus was and that John really was following the right guy, that he was on the right track. That Peter, whenever he began to sink, he reached out and he prayed. He said, Lord, save me, right? And so whenever he reached out to Jesus, whenever he was seeking out Jesus, Jesus reached out to him. And so whenever we're doubting, whenever we're discouraged, we can seek after him, we can pray to him, and he is going to bring us to himself. He's going to help dissolve those doubts. We saw that whenever Thomas was rejecting the, the resurrection, whenever he didn't believe that Jesus really rose from the dead, he says, I'm going to have to touch the nail prints in his hand. I'm going to have to thrust my hand into his side. That it was just a matter of time, even though he was in that time of unbelief and that time of doubt, that he just continued with the disciples. He just continued faithfully there, waiting to see what God was going to do. And it wasn't but only a matter of time, and Jesus showed up, and all doubts went away. And so sometimes it just takes a matter of us enduring the season of darkness, of doubt, of not knowing what's going on. And in time, all things are made plain. And so we saw all of that last week. Uh, we can uh, deal with our doubts, but just never go to that place of denial. Don't just turn your heart, harden your heart in bitterness and turn away from him. But this week, what we're going to be looking at, we're going to find Jesus is in hostile territory. Okay. Uh, he's in hostile ter territory. He's going to go to dinner at the home of a Pharisee. And, of course, we know uh, we've talked about the Pharisees often, and we kind of scorn them and make fun of them because of all the interactions that Jesus did, all the times that he points out their hypocrisy and whatnot. But in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the ones who were the religious elite. They were supposed to be the best of the best, the cream of the crop, and all of the the normal everyday people looked up to the Pharisees as their religious leaders. They were the examples that they looked to because they had everything polished up and it all looked good on the outside, okay? But as uh, Jesus went about ministering to the down and outs, to the outcasts, to the people who they scorned and they rejected, they weren't taking too kindly to Jesus. So there were times that he called them out. Just prior and just a couple weeks ago, we find that as he was, actually just last week, that whenever Jesus was talking about this generation is like children in the streets calling to one another and playing all these games. And the Pharisees took a little bit of offense to this. It says that they uh, didn't believe him, that they rejected his teachings. And then right in the same idea here, we come to our passage that we're at this week that Jesus is going to go to one of their houses. They're going to invite him to have dinner. And so we have to realize that this Pharisee probably doesn't have the greatest intentions of bringing Jesus along. He's already been somewhat antagonistic toward them. Uh, they've already butted heads a few times. They've already rejected him multiple times. And for him to invite Jesus to come along, uh, 
as I said, he's going in hostile territory. Have you ever been invited somewhere you didn't want to go? Yes. You felt obligated to go to it. Yeah. You had to go, and you're trying to think of reasons to get out of it. Yeah. If I had been Jesus here, I've been looking for excuses. I've been looking for some reason not to go to this event, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus isn't intimidated by the doubters or even the scorners, right? And so even though these guys are always up to no good, he's still willing to go to this guy's house. And really we get a beautiful picture whenever we see what goes on. And so let's look at Luke chapter 7, starting with verse number 36. It says, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to me. And behold, a woman was in, or excuse me, a woman in the city which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, uh, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him, wiping or weeping, excuse me, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thy house, and thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with, the, with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is given, the same loveth little. And he saith unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he saith, and he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Let's go, to the Lord, in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you once again for the day that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the the opportunity that we can get in it and we can learn from it. Lord, and we just pray that you'd meet with us here today. That you guide my thoughts, guide my speech, Lord, and help me to say that which is needful. Be with each person here, Lord, that they would glean from the service what they need. I pray that you minister to hearts today as only you can do. And Lord, I just pray, ask you help us, Lord, to draw closer to you. Help us, Lord, in our understanding. If there are those who doubt, those who struggle, Lord, I just pray that you'd help them in those times, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help each of us to have the proper perspective on who you are and what you've done for us, Lord, and that we would have that love and gratitude for you, Lord, that you so much deserve, Lord. And we thank you for all that you do and all these things we pray in Jesus' name and amen. I figure that this was an awkward dinner party. <laughs> yeah. 
As we go through these passages, you know I like to imagine them in my mind. I have an active imagination, okay? I don't know if you all do this. This is normal to me. I don't know if it's normal. But I have an active imagination, and so I'm picturing it. And, of course, you you know, you often see, like, the 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 painting of the Last Supper where they're, like, sitting around a table, and each of them have their little <laughs> chairs. For some reason, they all sit on one side so the artist can draw them, right? But in the Oriental custom and the places that they would have been at, uh, the table would have been much lower. They would have been seated on the floor, kind of reclined, and... Uh, leaned over there and their feet would have been out behind them and they've been kind of more casually eating around this table but if you consider the people who were here if he was at a pharisee's house the friends of the pharisee were probably pharisees as well and so jesus was there for observation he was there as somewhat the attraction here uh he was almost uh i might want to say that because that would be a little bit uh disrespectful for jesus But anyway, they were looking on him like he was on display, trying to figure out what they thought of him. And so everything that he was doing was being critiqued and criticized. Every action, every move that he made was being observed by them. And so as he was there at this dinner party, these men who were watching him didn't like him. It's been made pretty clear that he wasn't real crazy about them. He loved them, but he didn't like them, okay? Is that fair to say? You know what I'm talking about? I would say he loved him, but he didn't like him. Okay. And so anyway, as they were watching him in his life, and he was spending time with publicans and sinners, and not with the religious people like them, he was keeping the wrong crowd. He was doing the wrong things. And so they were critical of him. And then on top of all that, this woman shows up. You can guarantee she wasn't invited, Right? And she shows up, and it appears that she had quite the reputation. Her name is never mentioned, but she is just listed as the sinner. And so she has a reputation that was well-known, and it wasn't the type of woman that the Pharisees would spend time around. It wasn't the type that they were going to invite over for dinner, because in their mind, she was unclean, she was impure, she was unholy, she was defiled, and they wouldn't keep company with such a person. But in this time of this dinner, here we are. You have Jesus, you have the Pharisees, and you have this woman, the sinner. I figure things were tense. I figure everyone was just sitting, wanting to say something, and trying to hold back their tongues because there were so many things that were offensive to these Pharisees. And in this account, we find a contrast in the attitudes and actions toward Jesus from both the Pharisee, who was righteous and upstanding and religious, and this woman who was a sinner, who was outcast. So there's a a huge contrast going on. And our human thinking in this passage is that surely Simon the Pharisee, the one who holds to the law, who does all the sacrifices, who lives by all these rites and rituals and outwardly appears so great that surely he's going to be the one that comes out on top of this comparison. But we know from reading this and we know from being familiar with the Bible, that's not the way that it happens. It does just the opposite. And that is because it's not about how good we are. It's not about our appearance or what we look on the outside, but it's about how good he is. 
It's not about what others think of us, but it's about what do we think of him. Jesus asked his disciples at one point in time, who do men say that I am? And people had all kinds of different opinions about who Jesus is. But Jesus then looks at his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? And in this world that we live in, people have all kinds of different opinions about Jesus. All kinds of different ideas about who he is. And what really matters is, do you know the Jesus of Scripture? Do you know the Bible, the the Jesus that we find in the Bible, or is the Jesus that you're looking to one that you've made up of your own devices, one that religion has served up to you? Is it one that you have concocted somehow from whatever resource? And that's what really makes the difference. Because there's going to be plenty of people who say, I believe in Jesus. Well, which one? There are plenty of people that say, oh, yes, I follow Jesus. Which one? Is it the one of Scripture? And so we're going to find out that this woman and that this man, Simon, have a very different opinion and a very different view of who Jesus is. And so as we look at this here, we're going to look at Simon and the woman, and we're going to compare them for just a little bit because Jesus is the one that's uh, delivering this up to us in his word, right? We're going to compare them for just a little bit, and then we'll see what we can learn from this interaction. So the first thing, of course, we're going to look at Simon. Simon, as I said, he was a Pharisee. He had it all together. He was the one who was, as I said, the cream of the crop. He knew what it meant to be religious. He knew what it took to appear to be righteous. He knew how to get the attention of people for them to be able to brag on him and tell how good of a person that he is. We read much about the Pharisees as we go through the scripture. They love the greetings in the marketplace. They love to be called by their titles. And so everywhere they went, they made sure people knew that they were a Pharisee. They made sure that people knew that they were religious. They made sure that they appeared to be good in all that they were doing. They kept the law. They went through the rituals and they were admired by many. And as I said already, it looked good on the outside, right? It looked good on the outside. And so whenever he invited Jesus, I figured that he was probably pretty smug. Being such a devout religious individual with all of his expertise, he could easily host this itinerant preacher and suss him out and figure out what he's all about, right? And if nothing else for him and his fellow Pharisees, should be an entertaining evening, right? And so as he was planning this out, he says, here I am, I'm the gatekeeper. I'm the one who knows all of these things. I can bring him in. Everybody else is kind of afraid of him, but I can bring him in here. I can talk with him and I can pick him apart. I can come out afterward. I can give my uh, give my opinion on the matter and tell who this Jesus of Nazareth is and expose him for the fraud that he is. I figure that's the kind of ideas that was going through his head, right? There may have been a little bit of genuine curiosity. Maybe he was like Nicodemus, that he wanted an audience with Jesus to figure out if there was any any truth behind what he was saying, if there was uh, any possibility whatsoever that he was of God. But I don't see that by how he treated him that there was much goodwill toward Jesus in this invitation, okay? And one of the first things that I see by this, uh, of his opinion of Jesus, 
is he started off, he withheld honor from Jesus. He withheld honor from Jesus. And what I mean by that is that it was important in Jewish culture. It was customary that whenever you have any guest enter into your house, there were certain expectations for how you treat them. There were certain cultural things that you just were expected to provide, and he withheld all of those. Jesus calls him out for it. He says, whenever I came into your house, you didn't even give me water to wash my feet with. Of course, we know the roads that they traveled were dusty. They wore sandals. And whenever you come into someone's house, then you would offer them up water so they could wash, so they could clean up. He says, you didn't greet me with a kiss. Okay, well, in our culture, that's kind of weird. But some of you all have been to cultures where that was normal. You come up and you meet someone, instead of shaking their hand and saying, hello, how do you do? They will come up and they'll give you a kiss, maybe on one cheek, maybe on both, right? And in the Jewish culture, that was a common greeting. And you would greet a fellow Jew by giving him a kiss on the cheek. And he says, whenever I came into your house, you didn't even give me a greeting of a kiss. You didn't give me water. You didn't give me any oil to anoint my head with. Because once again, dusty times, they didn't go and take baths <laughs> every day. But a lot of times, they would. Uh, the oil was kind of like their dry shampoo of the day. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so they would take and they would put the oil through their hair and it would calm down their hair. It would help them with the dust and all the different stuff from the, the, the day. And he says, you didn't give me any of these uh, normal everyday considerations that you would offer to any other guest. You have withheld these honors from me. And it was just the bare minimum. Just the bare minimum, and he still wouldn't give him that. Maybe he didn't feel like Jesus was worthy of even this small consideration. Maybe he didn't think he deserved such an honor. So to, G or to Simon, Jesus was just another man at the table. He was just someone else at the dinner. He wasn't anyone of any significance. He wasn't anyone of any real importance. Simon might have been afraid of how his peers would respond if he had done anything that uh, indicated any kind of respect or any kind of honor, right? Simon, what kind of Pharisee are you coming here and treating him like an honored guest whenever he's just some itinerant preacher, maybe even a heretic? We don't know. And so he was afraid of what they would think of him. And so he wasn't going to show him honor or respect. Uh, it was enough for him just to have him over for dinner. Not only did he uh, withhold honor from him, he also criticized him. He criticized Jesus. What an opportunity he had to hear from Jesus. He could pose questions to him. He could uh, sort through all these different things that he had been hearing. He could pick his brain for just a little bit, if you will. But it doesn't seem like he does that from what's written. I don't find any conversation indicated in here. Maybe it was quiet. I don't know. Probably definitely quiet when this woman came in, right? But it says that as this man is sitting and observing, as he's watching Jesus, that he is thinking within himself, this man, if he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. And so he's got questions in his mind, and he's saying, if he was really a prophet, if he was really more than just some man, then he would know what kind of woman this is. I find it kind of interesting here that whenever he's questioning whether or not that Jesus is a prophet, whenever he's questioning and saying if he were a prophet, that Jesus is listening into his conversation he's having in his own mind. Now notice that none of this is happening out loud. Right. And so whenever he's having these thoughts, Jesus responds to his thoughts. 
as he's thinking Jesus isn't a prophet, and he says, hey, I have something to say to you while you're thinking this in your mind. And he responds to his thoughts, proving that he's a prophet, right? But that's just a, kind of an interesting side note on this. But his thoughts are critical of Jesus. Everything that Jesus is doing, he is thinking through, and he's got something wrong with what Jesus is doing. He's trying to find fault. Whenever this woman comes in, it just it just kind of proves all the things that he already speculated about Jesus, all the things that he'd already expected. That if Jesus was actually a prophet, he would know a prophet wouldn't act like that. Because, of course, this man knew all about prophets, right? He was an expert. He knew what a prophet should do, what a prophet should be like. You ever hear of an armchair quarterback? He was one of them. And so he knew what God should do. He knew how God should behave. He knew how this should happen. And Jesus wasn't acting like he thought that he should. All through the Gospels, we find those who constantly find fault in Jesus. But I think it's a great thing whenever we come up to the time whenever he's being crucified, that they try to find fault in him and they can't find any. Even Pilate says, I find no fault in him. And so one of the greatest faults that they found in him is that he didn't have any. And that was offensive to them. And so he was criticizing the Savior. Not only did he criticize the Savior, he criticized his servants. Because as he was looking at the type of people that followed Jesus, we find at times he says that he keeps company with publicans and sinners. Whenever he's looking at this woman, he says, if he knew what kind of woman that she was, he wouldn't let her touch him. He would put her far away from him. He wouldn't want anything to do with her because of the kind of woman she is. So he's observing this woman and he's finding all of her flaws and picking out all of her faults. And as he looked through all the crowd of Jesus' followers, he would pick out publican, sinner, blind man, leper, right? Cripple. That one used to be dead. I mean, that should be a sign to them, right? But it's all that used to be things. But then if he, pick, if he would go to any of the rest of maybe some of the less obvious ones, they could still find flaws with them. Look at the way that guy lives his life. His business practices aren't up to snuff. I can find fault with this one. I can find fault with that one. Can't believe she'd go out in public in that. Right? And so there's all kinds of flaws, all kinds of faults with all of Jesus' followers, and he can't get past all of these faults. And he can find something with each and every one of them because, of course, if he can find faults with Jesus, he can find faults with anyone except for himself. Right? And so as we turn our attention from this Pharisee, let's look at this woman, the one that they call the sinner. We know very little about her. Right? It doesn't expound on who she is, what she was like. We do know that she had a reputation. And whenever they're calling her a sinner, most likely it means that she she lived a, how do I say it, a, a loose life. Maybe she was like the woman at the well that she had had uh, five husbands and the one that she was with now wasn't her husband. Maybe she was a harlot. We don't know. Maybe she'd done time in prison. Maybe she was a thief. But for whatever, she was a marked person and she was well known throughout all of that area for the lifestyle which she lived 
her reputation preceded her, right? And though we don't know anything about her, though her name is never mentioned, we do know that Jesus knew her. And according to Jesus' words, one of these days she's going to be in heaven, right? And so as she was well known to all of them, she took a big risk coming there. As I've already said, she wasn't invited to the event. And so could you imagine her, I don't know, sneaking into the Pharisee's house, going in behind enemy lines, and coming in there while dinner is going on, coming up behind Jesus to his feet, and she is weeping over his feet, washing his feet with her tears, wiping it with her hair, and then she brings out this box of ointment, this perfume, and begins to douse it on his feet and wipe it on his feet, and the whole time she's kissing his feet. Wouldn't that be a distraction? We think Melody running around is a distraction. Can you imagine that going on while you're eating dinner? You know the place had to be silent. They're like, what's he going to do with this? And she took this risk, going on unfriendly territory, doing something that was likely to get her ridiculed and mistreated, and she didn't care because Jesus was there. And she knew that she would be safe in the presence of Jesus. It didn't matter what other people thought. She was only wanting to be in his presence. That's powerful, isn't it? For her to be willing to go through so much, to put herself at such a, a vulnerable position just to be in the presence of Jesus. And whenever we see how she treated Jesus, whenever we see her, her actions and her attitude toward him, while Simon withheld honor, she lavished him with praise. She lavished him with praise. Simon wouldn't even provide water to wash his feet with, and she was shedding tears, not of mourning, not of weeping in that way, but of joy, of being in his presence, of love, shedding this, these tears on his feet. She was willing to risk her reputation. Well, not her reputation. She didn't have one. She was willing to risk her life. She was willing to risk any kind of humiliation to come there. And not only did she have her tears that she shed abroad on him, but she was kissing his feet. How humiliating is that, right? She was kissing his feet. She take this ointment. It would have been valuable ointment that she came. She poured it on his feet and she wiped his feet down with this ointment and all these things. All this that she was willing to give to praise and to worship her Savior. See, all the things that Simon was doing was showing that he did not value Jesus, he did not respect Jesus, that he didn't really care much for Jesus. But all that this woman was doing was showing that all she cared about was Jesus, that he was more important than anything, that she was willing to give all, to risk all, to offer all up to him in praise and in honor because he was that valuable to her. Not only did she uh, lavish him with praise, but instead of criticizing him, she submitted to him. This idea of her being at his feet is the idea of submission. She didn't care what he was doing, really. She trusted him with whatever was going on. While Simon was sitting up there at the head of the table with a smug look on his face, looking down at her, she was sitting at Jesus' feet, not paying attention to anyone else but Jesus. While Simon was scrutinizing every action, she found no flaw. 
no fault in him. And so she was content for him to just be God and to just let him be God. I say the phrase oftentimes that he is God and we are not. Simon didn't get that because he thought that he was able to judge God. He was able to criticize God. And this woman says, I'm just going to sit here and submit to him. Whatever his will is, let his will be done. Not my will, but his be done, right? And so she trusted him. There might have been things that she didn't understand. may have been things that she didn't know, but that was okay because he knew what he was doing and she could trust him. Didn't matter what all the Pharisees thought. Didn't matter what all of them, their, their sideways glances, their remarks and different things. He was the one that was in focus. And so we looked at how Simon criticized Jesus' followers. He criticized his servants. But she didn't. She focused on Jesus rather than all the other people. She focused on Jesus rather than the servants. Because Simon and the rest of them, they couldn't get over the fact that that woman was there. They probably couldn't take their eyes off of her because of how incredulous she, they were toward her. Right? They were offended by her very presence of being there. And so they were probably seething with anger and rage toward her. If not, maybe they were glad that she was there just to prove what a phony and a fake that Jesus was. I don't know. But either way, they couldn't take their attention off of her. But I have a feeling that she didn't even know who was in the room with her. I have a feeling she couldn't tell you one person that was seated at that table other than Jesus because he was the one that had her focus and had her attention. She wasn't looking at Simon. She wasn't looking at the other guys in the room. She was looking at Jesus. And so she had no time, no space to criticize anyone else because her focus was on Jesus only. And so Jesus' parable puts it all into perspective. Whenever he says that these two debtors, one of them owed 50, one owed 500, he's not saying that this woman was 10 times more sinful than what Simon was. It's not what he's saying. But he's saying that this woman understands the debt that she owed. Simon doesn't. You notice here in verse number 42, it says they had nothing to pay. They had nothing to pay. That means that both of them were incapable of settling their debt. That there is no one who can pay the wages of sin, right? And that's what we find all throughout Scripture. We think that, you know, this person is better than that person. We can justify ourselves and say, well, at least I've never done this or I've never done that. But we miss the entire point because it doesn't matter if you're the most moral person or the most depraved person that we are still unable to pay for our own sin debt because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we find here that neither of them had anything to pay and they were both forgiven, wiped clean, nothing held against them, completely done away with, not because of their righteousness, not because of their works, not because of the good deeds that they had done, but because of the goodness of the master. And so he asked, the, uh, he asked Simon the Pharisee, he asked him this question, which one of them will love him most? You have one that is at the lowest at the low, the one that's hit rock bottom, and you have the one who's doing all right in life. Both of them get forgiven. Which one's going to love him most? And Simon says, 
the one who was forgiven of the greater debt. And Jesus says, well, you've answered correctly. And so while you're looking down at this woman for the sinner that she is, you're not realizing you're a sinner as well. While she is here lavishing me with praise and can find no fault in me and doesn't care about what anybody else is doing, all you can do is see her sin, see my faults, see my flaws, and you think that you are something special. You think that she's something horrible, and you are just as sinful and just as lost as what she is. And so the reason why you look down on me is because you don't realize that you need me. And the reason why she is lavishing me with praise, the reason why she is willing to worship and to praise me is she realizes how much she needed me. It's a huge difference, right? Simon saw himself as a good person. And so to him, Jesus was just another man at the table. And I, that, that phrase, just another man at the table, keeps sticking out to me. Because I feel like a lot of times that's the way that we treat Jesus. He's just another ingredient in our lives. He's just another, another person in our surroundings, just another part of, of our day-to-day goings about. He's not our focus. He's not the one that we're putting the attention on. We find faults. We find flaws. We find failures with him. We argue. We complain. We, we don't like the way this is done. And we say, if he was really good, if he really loved me, then why am I going through this? Why am I being treated this way? Why does the world like this? And we find so many flaws. We start picking apart his servants and say, look what a mess they are. Look at the flaws and the faults that they have. And we start picking apart everyone else. And I guess what I'm saying in all of this is whenever I look at Simon and whenever I look at this woman, much more often than I'm comfortable with, I find myself more like Simon than her. I find myself more like him than I do her. And the whole point of this passage we find is that whenever we realize who he is and how much we need him and how good he is, then we are going to love him and we are going to appreciate him. And then all these other things are going to go out the window and our focus is going to become on him alone. But until we realize that we are lost and that we are sinful and that we are in need of a savior and that we have no leg to stand on and how great of a price that Jesus pays for us, we act as if it was nothing whenever he had to buy us. At least we didn't do this or that or the other. But it took the shed blood of Jesus to purchase every single one of us, regardless of our sinfulness. It didn't cost any less to redeem Kev than it did me or me than someone else. But it took his shed blood. He was willing to go to the cross and die for you and for me. And I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of it. And so whenever I look at this through the, the this through this lens of how does this apply to me, I see that I'm more like Simon. I ask myself these questions. Am I more concerned about what other people think or about what Jesus thinks of me? Am I more interested in pleasing people or pleasing Jesus? Simon was looking at pleasing people, right? Am I doing just the things that are expected or customary? Am I just doing the bare minimum? Am I just barely getting by in my walk with Christ? 
Or am I truly honoring him? Am I truly praising him? Am I truly trusting him? Am I truly worshiping him? How do I value him? I've talked about in the past the very meaning of worship is to uh, to assign worth to something. Worship. And so whenever I'm spending my time and I'm using my energy and I'm using my resources and all these different things, I am showing that he is worth something to me. He is valuable to me. He is precious to me. And whenever I treat him just like another man at the table, I'm saying that he's worth nothing. I should be worshiping him with my time, my actions, my substance, my heart. But too often I'm just doing the bare minimum. Am I prone to criticize his word and his way and his will? Or do I lay humbly at his feet and submit to him and say, God, whatever you want, I want that. We trust in him with our lives. Am I guilty of finding faults and flaws with every believer? Or do I have my eyes on him and trusting him that he can take care of his sheep? That's, that's a tough one. Because we're so prone to look at everyone else and judge and compare. The Bible says if we compare ourselves among ourselves, we're unwise. And we start doing that, we seek to justify ourselves. We even have the, the time whenever Peter is talking to Jesus and the, the, the famous time of, uh, lovest thou me more than these, right? And Peter looks back and he sees John and he says, well, what about him? He says, don't worry about him. Just follow me, right? And that's the, the attitude that we should have. I don't care what other people are doing. I need to follow him first. He'll lead me to the right people. He'll lead me to the right places. He'll lead me to the right beliefs and the right actions if I put my attention, my focus right on him first. Uh, I often quote the passage where it says, Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If we're seeking him first, then not just the, the physical needs of this life are taken care of, but all the rest of it's going to fall in place as well, even our beliefs and our doctrine. And so do I love a little or do I love a lot? Is the price that he paid for me great in my eyes or was I a bargain? All too often, I, as I said, I find my actions, my attitudes line up more with Simon's than with a sinful woman. But I take reassurance in the fact that Jesus loves Simon too. Whenever we do these comparisons, we think, oh, he loved this woman more than he did Simon. No, he loved this man, Simon, this Pharisee. He loved him as well. And he would have saved him just the same as he saved this woman. Because it says here in verse number 50, he says, thy faith has saved thee. That's how we're saved. We are saved by faith, not our works, she wasn't even saved because she anointed him with ointment, because she cried tears, or because uh, she came and, and done all these things to him. That's not why she was saved. She was saved by her faith. And if Simon would have looked to Christ in faith, he could have been saved as well. And so I take a little bit of consolation that Jesus loves Simon just the same. But I don't want to be Simon. I want to be as in love with Jesus as what this woman was. I want to be willing to throw aside all of my cares and concerns about what everybody else thinks. I want to throw aside what humiliation, what pride, 
I want to throw aside all of those things and just come to him and trust him and follow him and submit to him and allow him to put my focus, my attention where it needs to be. And honestly, that's where Jesus wants us to be at. Does it come naturally? Does it come easy? No, it's a work that he has to do in us. But whenever we realize how much he loves and how much he has given, it's going to put it in perspective. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And this woman so loved Jesus that she went past all the mocking, the shame, the ridicule, and gave all she had to worship and to praise and to honor him. We see all throughout Scripture that love gives. And so for us today, let's evaluate. Do we love him? Do we see the price that he is paying? Let us be like this woman and not like Simon. Let's go, Lord. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for this example in Scripture, Lord. You don't demand of us all kinds of uh, rituals and pomp and all these different things, but you desire a heart of love and trust that will come to you in our broken state and just lay down at your feet and allow you to be God. Lord, we try to take up that mantle of the Pharisee and be like Simon and uh, try to figure out what you should be and how you should act and what everybody else should do. And we criticize and we judge and we, we put ourselves on a throne that only you should be on. Lord, help us, Lord, to take our rightful place as thankful, as loving, as praising, as honoring, as worshiping servants of an almighty and all-loving God. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, search our hearts and guide us and direct us and pull us to you. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. We ask you to do the needed work in the lives of each and every person here and challenge our hearts and help us as we meditate on these things. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. And amen.